Well, let's go to the Lord and, uh, and pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, O oh, oh God in heaven, Lord, you are a holy God. Lord, you are enthroned uh, in heaven above the seraphim. And Lord, they, they hide their faces from you, Lord. They dare not look upon your glory and your holiness. And all day long, they, they cry to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of your glory. Oh God, we, we are unworthy to come into your presence. Lord, you are a consuming fire, oh Lord. You are holy. Lord, we are unholy. We, we don't deserve to stand before you, Father. When Isaiah the prophet saw you, saw this vision of, of Christ seated on the throne with the seraphim shouting, holy, 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 Lord, he, he fell down and he was undone. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Woe is me. Oh Lord, you are holy. And nothing, nothing unclean will ever enter your presence, as it says in the book of Revelation, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Oh God, you are a holy God. And Lord, in our unrighteousness, we, we confess, oh God, we are, we are sinners. Lord, we deserve nothing from you but your judgment and your wrath. Father, we, we do that which we ought not to do. We lie. We lust. Lord, we take that which does not belong to us. Lord, we care more about others' opinion of us than your opinion of us. Lord, we, we fail to do that which we ought to do. We lack compassion on others. Lord, we don't weep with those who weep. Lord, we're often so busy chasing our own, our own goals, our own ambitions. We're too busy thinking about ourselves to care about those around us. Oh God, we, we fall short of your glory. We are sinners. And as such, oh Lord, we deserve to be separated from you forever in hell. Lord, we have not loved you as you deserve. Lord, we we're so self-consumed so often, seeking our own interests rather than the interests of others. Oh Lord, we confess all of these things to you, and we, we cry out to you for mercy this morning. Oh Lord, we, we confess that even our best deeds, even the best things we do, are tainted with impure motives. Oh Lord, help us. Lord, we, we come to you for mercy, and we thank you that through Christ, you have shown us mercy, Lord. You have given us what we don't deserve. Lord, you sent him who knew no sin, who was perfect. Lord, you, you sent your only begotten son to live the perfect life that we have failed to live, to die the death that our sins deserved. Lord, he was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. He was crushed so that we would be made whole. By his wounds we are healed, O oh Lord. And so we come to you in the name of Jesus, asking you to forgive our sins this morning, to put aside our transgressions, Lord, 
as far as the east is from the west. Oh Lord, our only hope is Christ. And so we thank you for your mercy that you have shown us in Christ for all those who come to you simply trusting in him by faith. Lord, as your, as your forgiven people this morning, as those bought by the blood of Christ, Lord, we want to see his name proclaimed in all the earth. We want to see, we want to see him made glorious among every tribe and tongue and people and language. Oh God, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, with this in mind, we pray for we pray for the advance of the gospel around the globe. Lord, we pray, we think of the, the nation of Turkey this morning as we have uh, missionaries from Turkey here with us, the Tigrin family. Lord, we pray for the advance of the gospel in Turkey. Lord, that country that it, in, in which there is so much darkness, so little gospel witness. Lord, please raise up more faithful and qualified pastors to shepherd churches there in Turkey. Send more missionaries who are faithful to that nation, O oh God. Lord, perhaps even from our midst you would send some. Lord, we pray that, that you would give the churches their strength, Lord, as, as many are without jobs, unable to work right now because of virus and other things, Lord. Please help them, Lord, not to fear, not to be anxious, but to trust in you. We pray for the Tigreen family as as they're back here in the States, as Joel is getting cancer treatments, Lord, we pray that those treatments would be successful. Lord, we long for uh, what they long for, that they would be able to return to the mission field and continue to work there in Turkey. And yet, Lord, we trust your wise purposes. Your will be done, Father. Lord, as, as we turn our attention here locally, we pray, to, we pray for all of the, the faithful gospel-preaching churches in our area, Lord, we think specifically of First Baptist Church of Centerton as Pastor Josh Babb continues his study in the Gospel of Matthew. Lord, please bless that church. Be with Pastor Josh as he preaches your word this morning. I pray that the word would be clear and that the gospel would go forth clearly and that you would build up that church. We pray for University Baptist as, as uh, they have uh, a new assistant pastor candidate coming to, to preach this morning. Lord, uh, please be with their service and give them wisdom as they transition. Build up that church, we pray. We pray for us, Father, for Emmanuel Baptist. We pray that as we transition, as we, as we look to, to days ahead, Lord, and as we see many changes and as we see, Lord, um, all of this coming, we pray that we would be unified. We pray that we would love one another and be patient with one another through the transition. Give us wisdom, give us grace, and I pray that the, the light of the gospel would go out in this city, would go out in Springdale, and that we would be a part of that work, Lord, that we would continue to be a part of that work. Lord, I pray for our service this morning. May you be glorified in it. May you be exalted. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, give hope to the hopeless, bind up the brokenhearted, Lord, strengthen the weak. As we sing, Father, and as we pray, and as we hear the word preached, Build us up, save the lost, and give us grace, Lord, for this week. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Just before I get started, let me just open us up with a, a quick word of prayer. Dear God, oh Lord, help me now as I speak. Lord, give me words to speak. Help me to speak in such a way that honors 
this word from Matthew chapter 3 this morning. Glorify your name, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why did Jesus come in the way he came? I mean, if he needed to die on the cross for our sin and rise from the dead for our salvation, then why didn't Jesus just come as a grown man and, you know, just kind of come down from heaven on Good Friday and die and and raise from the dead and be done? What was with the the 33 years of, of life, all those years in obscurity, living in a backwater town, a, a town of no reputation, in Nazareth. Why did Jesus come in the way he came? What was the purpose of all those years of living? Though the death and resurrection of Jesus were essential to provide salvation from sin. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came to earth to do much more than just die and rise. What is that more that Jesus came to do? Was it to teach? You know, Jesus taught a lot, you know, the Sermon on the Mount that we'll be, we'll be getting into before long, and maybe it was to do miracles, Though Jesus certainly did come to teach and do miracles, there was something more, something behind that teaching and that healing and that living that is critical to our salvation. There was something else besides dying and rising that Jesus had to do if if any of us were to live with God forever in paradise. So as we return to our study in the Gospel of Matthew today, our scripture passage is Matthew chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 13 through 17, and, and our text this morning will shed some light on this question. So far in Matthew's Gospel, just for a little bit of background and context, you know, in, in chapter 1, he's given us the lineage of Jesus, showing us that he's the promised king and Messiah of God's people, the, the great son of David that would come into the world. He's told us about the miraculous conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That this Jesus is God in the flesh. That he's Emmanuel, God with us. God with his people to save his people from their sin. He's shown how Jesus was recognized as king of the Jews by foreign magi from the east. And how King Herod even viewed Jesus as a rival and tried to have him killed when he was still just a baby. And last time in Matthew, we looked at the great prophet John the Baptist, the one who Jesus said was the greatest born among women, the greatest man who ever lived. And he had a popular ministry before Jesus. But this greatest man who ever lived, his whole purpose was to get the people of God ready for their Messiah. He was preparing the way for God and the person of Jesus of Nazareth, calling people to repent of their sins and turn to God. And he was baptizing, as we, as we remember, not just Gentiles, but he was baptizing Jews in order to show them that they were not okay as they were. They were not somehow just born okay with God, that they needed to repent and be cleansed of their sin in order to have the kingdom of God. 
So if you have your Bibles, again, we're in Matthew 3, 13 through 17 this morning. And let's read it together. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The main idea of this portion of Scripture is that Jesus is the perfect Son of God who is both qualified and willing to save sinners. Jesus is the perfect Son of God who is both qualified and willing to save sinners. And those will be our two points today. First, that that Jesus is qualified to save sinners. And secondly, that Jesus is willing to save sinners. So first, Jesus is the perfect Son of God who is qualified to save sinners. And our passage in Matthew 3, it begins with a bit of a problem. You see, John is baptizing with a baptism that's symbolizing cleansing from sin. A baptism of repentance and of turning away from an old life in order to be initiated into the people of God. But here comes Jesus to be baptized by John. Do you see the problem? Does this mean that Jesus is admitting that that he's actually a sinner and that he needs to be cleansed? That he needs to do some repenting? Now, John the Baptist, he certainly sees the problem. This is one reason that John tries to prevent Jesus from from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In John the Apostle's gospel, he records John the Baptist saying when when he saw Jesus coming towards him, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the lamb, the lambs for sacrifice, who would symbolically remove the guilt of sin from God's people, they would have to be spotless lambs, lambs without blemish. You couldn't just bring your your diseased lamb with a broken leg that got attacked by a wolf and give that to God as a sacrifice for your sin. That would be an affront to God. No, God God called for the best, the the pure and spotless lamb to take away sin, to remove the guilt of his people. And these lambs in the Old Testament sacrificial system, they were pictures, they were visual representations of the spotless lamb who was to come, of the pure and unblemished lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And here, John identifies Jesus as this lamb, this spotless lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And if Jesus is to take away the sin of the world, he can't be a sinner. 
That doesn't work. He'd have, if that was the case, he'd have to pay for his own sins. He'd have his own sins that would need to be taken away. No, there must be an innocent one. There must be a spotless lamb without blemish to take away sin. Only such an innocent substitute could die as a sacrifice for the guilty, taking away their sin. But here, we see that Jesus comes for baptism, a baptism of repentance. Though he alone of all mankind had no need for repentance. Now, if Jesus had been just a very good person with maybe just a little sin, John certainly wouldn't have had any issue baptizing him for the sake of that little sin that Jesus did have, if, if Jesus had sin, I'm saying. But instead, John is reluctant. You know, John doesn't say, you know, Jesus, you're a really good person, but I'll go ahead and baptize you for the sake of that little sin. Yeah, you know, go ahead and repent of that, and, and I'll baptize you. But no, John is reluctant. He says, you mean you want me to baptize you? Surely I'm missing something, Jesus. I'm not understanding you. Surely you mean that, that you need to baptize me. I mean, you don't have any sin, Jesus. John's reluctance to baptize Jesus is an affirmation of Jesus' sinlessness. Jesus doesn't have any sin to repent of. We'll talk more about why Jesus ends up getting baptized here in a moment. But we need to see that, that John recognizes Jesus as sinless. And we also see that, that after Jesus is baptized, after he comes up out of the water, the heavens open and God the Spirit descends in the form of a dove and rests on Jesus. The Holy Spirit rested, remained on Jesus. The Spirit of God, as we'll see later in Matthew, is who empowered Jesus to cast out demons and to do his, his miracles. Now, we may tend to think that, that Jesus did all the miraculous things he did just in his own uh, divine power, that he did it by his power as God the Son, as the second person of the Trinity. But God the Son took on a real human body in the incarnation. It was a body like ours, subject to fatigue, to hunger, to sickness, to death. You know, Jesus, he wasn't some kind of third species, like a, a mixture, some strange mixture of God and man, but, but not really God and not really man. No, he, he had a fully divine nature and he had a fully human nature. He was the God-man. He had a real human body and a, a real human mind, a body that sweat, a stomach that grew hungry. Neither, neither was Jesus just a mere man from his birth, as, as some skeptics would say. He, he wasn't in his baptism suddenly becoming anointed with the power of God, but before that he was just, just a a normal person like the rest of us, nothing special about him. No, from his birth, Matthew chapter 1 says that, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He wasn't just now becoming the Son of God. From his birth, he was God with us. John MacArthur explains that when he became a man, 
Jesus did not lose his divinity. He did not cease to be, to be God. He was still fully God in every way. In his deity, he needed nothing. But in his humanity, he was here being anointed for service and granted strength for ministry. The Spirit anointed him for his kingly service as Isaiah the prophet had predicted, saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Jesus' anointing with the Spirit was unique. It was given to empower him in his humanness, but it was also given as a visible confirming sign to John the Baptist and to everyone else watching that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the great King who was coming. The Lord had called John to announce and to prepare men for. So Jesus had the Holy Spirit remaining on him as he ministered. And he also had the affirmation of God the Father. Look down at verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In the Marvel superhero movie Thor, um, the main character, Thor, he's, he's sent to earth. But it isn't a rescue mission. He, he's sent to earth, and it's actually he's been banished from his homeland because of his own arrogance and his own foolishness. He does end up doing some rescuing in the movie while he's, while he's on earth, but originally he was sent here because he wasn't on good terms with his father. But Jesus has not been banished to earth. He's not been cast out of heaven for bad, bad behavior. The father is pleased with the son. The father loves the son. The father affirms the son publicly. The spirit rests on the son and is with him in his ministry. So it's worth noting here that we see all three persons of the Trinity in this text. And the Bible, the Bible teaches us that there is one God, Yahweh, but that this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see all three of those persons of the Godhead here in this passage. If you want to read more on the doctrine of the Trinity, a core doctrine of the Christian faith, and sadly one that's often misunderstood, uh, there's a helpful book here. I have it, uh, The Forgotten Trinity by Dr. James White. And the Trinity is, is something that is core to our faith, and it's often misunderstood by Oneness Pentecostals and, and others, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, different cults, they, they misunderstand the Trinity. But the Trinity is something that is clearly taught in Scripture, and we see it here in this text. And one implication of the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is a God of relationship. The persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, have eternally been in relationship with one another. There is eternal love within the Trinity that makes it impossible for God to ever have been lonely or in need of relationship. You know, God didn't create us because he was lonely. God didn't create man because he needed some companionship. 
God already had companionship. God already had companionship within the Trinity. And yet he, he made man in order to express that love and to share that love with us. We catch a glimpse of this love in the Trinity among the persons of God in this scene on the banks of the Jordan River as the Spirit comes and rests upon the Son and as the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He's my uniquely loved Son. He's publicly affirming that here, that he loves his son, lest there be any doubt. Because what happens to Jesus after this would make many doubt whether the father really loved the son. Jesus' outward circumstances were not promising. But here the father affirms that regardless of appearances, he loves the son and he is well pleased with his son. So Jesus has been attested as sinless by John. He's been anointed by God the Holy Spirit. He's been affirmed by God the Father. He is the perfect Son of God who is qualified to save sinners. That's our first point. He's qualified to save. But is Jesus willing? It's one thing to be qualified for a position. It's one thing to meet the requirements for a certain role. But it's another thing to be willing to fulfill that role. It's another thing to want bad enough to do it. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus is not only qualified to save sinners, but he's willing to save sinners. He wanted to do it. Even though it wouldn't be easy, even though it would cost him his life and so much more than his life, We can see Jesus' willingness to save sinners in his response to John the Baptist. Now, I mentioned earlier John's reluctance to baptize Jesus. And and how does Jesus respond to this? Why, Why did Jesus end up getting baptized? Does he say to John, you know, well, John, you know, you may think I'm sinless, but there's a few things that I've done that you don't know about, and it's time for me to fess up. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't correct John on that point. Jesus doesn't contradict John's understanding of of him as, as sinless. Instead, Jesus responds in verse 15 by saying to John the Baptist, Let it be so for now. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John, I know this isn't normal, and I don't have time for a lengthy theological explanation, but let it be so now. Permit it at this time, as it says in the NASB. And the reason Jesus does give, though it's brief, though it's kind of cryptic, though it's a bit vague, is for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Understanding this will help us understand why Jesus was baptized if he wasn't sinful. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness? Jesus alludes So again, as I as I mentioned in the introduction, 
why didn't Jesus just come down as a fully grown man and, and die? Why didn't he just make a beeline for Calvary and then leave the earth? Turn to Romans 5 for just a moment. Romans chapter 5. And I won't read the whole thing, but basically what's going on in this chapter is that Paul is comparing Adam to Christ. In Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, this is explained more fully here in Romans 5. So in Romans 5, the first Adam, he sinned in the garden of Eden, and by that one man's disobedience, the whole human race was plunged into sin and God's curse and God's wrath. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinful. This is because in the garden, Adam represented all of us. Adam represented all humanity. But that's not the end of the story. So read with me Romans 5 and verses 17 through 19. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, that's talking about Adam's sin in the garden, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam's disobedience brought curse, death, condemnation, hell. Jesus' obedience brings life, blessing, justification, heaven to all of Jesus' people, to all those who, as verse 17 says, receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. If you haven't come to Jesus to receive his grace and his free gift of righteousness, then you're still an Adam. That's the way all of us are born. We're born sinners and we're born condemned. But by the one man's obedience, by Jesus' obedience, many will be made righteous. So what was that obedience? What was this righteous, this righteous act that Jesus did? What was Jesus' obedience? Was it Calvary? Was it his death on the cross? Jesus' obedience certainly included his death on the cross at Calvary. That was absolutely critical. And yet, that wasn't the entirety of Jesus' obedience. That wasn't all that Jesus did. We needed Jesus not only to die the death that we deserved, but we needed him to live the life that we should have lived, but haven't. Turn to Philippians 2 for just a moment. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. And it says of Jesus in Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Notice that it says he was obedient to the point of death. So his death was part of his obedience, but there was other obedience before that death. He was obedient even to the point of death. So Jesus' death was part of his obedience, but it wasn't its entirety. It was the culmination of his obedience. It was the climax of Christ's obedience, but it wasn't everything. Jesus came not only to die, but as our Matthew 3 passage says, to fulfill all righteousness. To Matthew's Jewish audience, they'd have understood this to mean perfect obedience to every jot, to every dot and iota of the law. Everything that God had required of his people, Jesus would do on their behalf. Jeremiah prophesied of this, saying that the Lord himself would be our righteousness. Jeremiah talked of a righteous king from the line of David, and in chapters 23 and 33, he gives him this title, saying, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. So Jesus is not only the spotless lamb who is sacrificed for our law-breaking, but he's also the perfect law keeper who keeps the law on our behalf, on the behalf of all those who trust in him. He is our righteousness. We needed him not only to take our hell, but to earn us heaven. As the late R.C. Sproul so aptly put it, if all Jesus did was die for your sins, that would remove all of your guilt and that would leave you sinless in the sight of God but not righteous. You would be innocent, but not righteous, because you haven't done anything to obey the law of God, which is what righteousness requires. And so, in tying it back to Jesus' baptism, he says, Jesus is not acting in his baptism for himself, but for his people. And if his people are required to keep the Ten Commandments, to keep the law, he keeps the Ten Commandments. If his people are now required to submit to this baptismal ritual of John the Baptist, he submits to it in their behalf. Because the redemption that is, that is brought by Christ is not restricted to his death on the cross. We needed more than someone just to come and die for us and give us a second chance. We didn't just need our, our errors wiped out and, and a clean slate, getting us back to square one so we could have a, a fresh start. We needed someone to do more than that. We needed someone to come and to do what we could not, to fulfill all righteousness for us. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus was already sinless, already perfectly beloved and pleasing to the Father. He had no need of a righteousness for himself. It wasn't to improve his own standing that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. The Son had already existed in perfect love and unity with the Father and Spirit from eternity. The righteousness that Jesus is fulfilling was not for himself, but for those in need of a righteousness before God. It was for those unable to keep the law. For us, for sinful lawbreakers, 
Jesus works hard fulfilling the law of God, and he builds up an inheritance of which he gives every penny of it to us, an infinite wealth of righteousness, so that we, having our sins forgiven and having the law kept for us, can receive the blessing of keeping the law, and we can live with God forever. And in Jesus fulfilling this righteousness, not for himself, but for those in need of a righteousness before God, for those unable to keep the law, for us sinners, he shows his willingness to save. Otherwise, he wouldn't wouldn't go to all this trouble. Jesus is the perfect son of God who is both qualified and he's willing to save sinners. So what does this mean for us? When we really begin to to grasp this truth, it's an unfading ray of hope from the very throne of heaven. We need to understand this truth. It's for our joy. You know, doctrine is not for for ivory tower theologians to just debate about. It's for us, the the normal Christian, as we go through our, our week. We need to know about what Jesus did to fulfill all righteousness. You know, this this truth has encouraged me when I get up in the morning. the, The thought has occurred to me that even now, before I've done anything amazing for God today, if I if I even do, you know, before I do anything for God today, He already is smiling upon me. He already looks at me and and sees me as holy. Because when I wake up in the morning, I'm already wearing that perfectly shining robe of Christ's righteousness that he made for me by fulfilling all righteousness. And I'm accepted in Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus did. Even though I've not done anything for God yet today. I'm not saved according to my performance, but according to Jesus' perfect performance. And his righteousness credited to my account. You see, a doctrine like this is for our joy. It's for our comfort. God wants us to know how we've been forgiven and just to what extent he went in in his love for us. He wants us to know how secure we are as a result. You know, so many Christians, their joy and strength is zapped. Kind of like like heat exhaustion on a hot day. Because they don't drink in the cooling refreshment of truths like this one. That Jesus is our righteousness. You know, we don't think about it enough. We don't grasp it as we should. You know, we may say we believe in salvation by grace, through faith. But so often we can fall into this performance-based mindset. Wondering if we've done enough for God. Wondering if if he's pleased with us. You know, we got the gospel. Great, you know, I'm forgiven. And then we kind of turn our backs on it and we just, we think, okay, what do I need to do now? We kind of move on. We start focusing on what we need to be doing. You know, do, do, do. And I'm not doing enough. I need to do better. Man, I'm not doing as good as so-and-so over there. I, I need to, I need to get my act together. I'm falling so short. 
when we can be burdened and our, our joy has, has vanished, all we're seeing is our imperfections, our shortcomings. Brothers and sisters, there are times to examine ourselves. There are times to, to examine our shortcomings and to confess those to God. The Christian life is one of continual confessing and repenting and turning from sin. We fight our sin. But for every look at ourselves, every glance inward of introspection and self-examination, we need to take 10 looks at Christ. We need to take 10 looks at Christ. We're so wired to think that God's acceptance of us depends on us. We need to be continually reminded that Jesus is our righteousness. That our acceptance before God doesn't depend on us, it depends on Christ alone. Only then, only as we grasp this, will we obey not to earn God's acceptance, but because we already have God's acceptance. We'll obey in freedom and in joy, in gratitude, not to gain his love, but because we have his love already. And that makes all the difference in the world. The thief on the cross spent his whole life in wickedness. And you can picture him there, hanging from a few rough iron spikes, just a few breaths left in his lungs, a few agonizing gasps away from God's judgment, a few breaths from an eternity in hell. And with what seems to have been his dying words, the thief on the cross asks Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. The man didn't have any opportunity to, to get down off the cross and to finish his life well, to make up for all the bad he'd done and all the people he'd hurt and all the opportunities he'd missed. He didn't have a second chance to go out and do better. But in that moment, his sins were atoned for by the precious blood of Christ. And in that moment, he received the free gift of righteousness, as Romans 5.17 says, from the one right beside him on that cross who fulfilled all righteousness. And he walked into heaven, a forgiven man, a righteous man, clothed in a righteousness he hadn't done anything to earn. Perhaps you're here and you've never understood this message of grace. Maybe you've Maybe you've kind of viewed God more as an employer. Your relationship with him has been one of, you know, I, I'm going to do my thing and then, then God needs to bless me. Your, your focus has been on your performance and, you know, am I, am I doing what I need to be doing? You put in your, your work and, you know, of course God's supposed to bless you. Of course he would, he would let you into his heaven. But friends, God, God can never be obligated to, to us. He's never under any obligation to us. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing but judgment, condemnation. You know, the, the very breath we breathe is not ours. Even our bodies don't belong to us. We can't do with them as we please. 
yet we often live as though we're in charge. We're selfish and we're self-centered rather than being God-centered and submitting to Him as Lord. This is our sin, and it comes out in a myriad of different ways, from the heart attitudes, from the misplaced affections, to the, the concrete acts of disobedience to God's law. You know, we're all born sinners. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. We're all born unworthy of God's blessing. And the bad news is that we can never do enough good to make up for that. At the end of the day, we'll still have sins that will land us in hell under God's judgment forever. We can't erase our sin by trying to do harder or do better. God's justice demands that we be condemned unless our guilt is removed and unless the law that we're obligated to obey is kept. But because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and he paid the penalty for our law-breaking, because he kept the law in our place, now all who trust in him, all who come to him and agree with God over their sin, repenting of it, confessing it, saying, God, you are right, I am guilty. Come to him in faith and you will be forgiven. Like the thief on the cross, you won't just be given a second chance, but you'll be given a complete righteousness, complete acceptance before God that can never be taken away. If you haven't experienced this grace, if you haven't come to Jesus, you can come today. You can come today. Talk to me after, after we're done. Talk to one of, the, one of the church members here. Turn from your efforts to do better in order to win God's favor. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ, casting yourself completely on his mercy, pleading for the gift of his perfect righteousness. Jesus is the son of God who's not only qualified to save us, but he is willing to save sinners, and none who come to him, he will cast out. He will receive you. Come to Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we pray. Lord, if there are any here who have not come to you, that they would come, that they would see that you have done everything that is required. The the table is set. The feast is prepared. May they come and receive your perfect righteousness, receive your pardon, your complete pardon and forgiveness. Oh Lord, may those of us here who believe upon you, who trust in you, may we remember this as we go about our week this week. May we remember that we are pardoned, that we are forgiven, and that we have a perfect righteousness that Jesus accomplished for us when he came to fulfill all righteousness. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Don't forget there's some wipes out there. Be sure you grab a wipe and wipe the seat down before you leave today, if you would, please. Our benediction this morning as we close comes from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority 
before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Go in his peace.